Computer, initialize Holosuite. On this supersonic episode of Starpod Track, we consider issues number 15 and 16 from 1978 of Starlog Magazine. Guests on this episode include Bob Turner and Kelly Castro. Give us the Trek Report. We also discuss the connection between the Twilight Zone and Star Trek. Also, Antonio Porras Valverde explores interplanetary excursions. Look forward to sci-fi predictions, Alan D. Foster's Star Trek logs, and more on this exciting episode of Star Pod Trek. Greetings and felicitations. Hip, hip, hoorah, tally-ho. Hey, cutie pie. Hey, puddin'. I'm Nayar. And I'm Kavora. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. On each episode of Starpod Trek, we open up two issues of Starlog Magazine and discuss the Star Trek and science-related articles. We also consider what it was like to be a Trekkie decades ago. If you are listening to us on a podcast app... Make sure that you find our YouTube channel for bonus content and Star Trek episode reviews. Please join our Facebook group. We look forward to meeting our listeners at the following upcoming conventions. We are going to Mission Tour Las Vegas this year, the big Star Trek convention in Las Vegas. It will be August 11th through 15th, and we can't wait. Yeah, it'll be a whole week of Star Trek activities. I mean, I've never been to a Las Vegas Star Trek convention before. The last time I did something Vegas Star Trek related was when the experience was there at at the Hilton. But you've been to Star Trek Las Vegas. Yes, I have. It was a long time ago. I mean, I went when they still had the um, the Star Trek experience there. So this is going to be a totally new experience for the both of us, doing a convention that's just totally Trek in Vegas. I'm very much looking forward to it, and I know... It's been maybe almost 20 years now since I've been on this trip, so I know a lot has changed. Yeah, and we get we actually will see a lot of people we know there. Yeah, we're looking forward to those activities, definitely. And shortly after that is going to be Dragon Con, the, the most awesome convention in the entire world, in my opinion. Dragon Con is in Atlanta, Labor Day weekend. Uh, this year it is September 2nd through the 6th. The track track there is just absolutely incredible. It's like a convention within a convention. At this time, uh, Dragon Con has just started announcing guests, so uh, we'll see probably more guests named uh, this year. Garrett Wong is always the one in charge of the track track, so he'll be there, of course. And he's always entertaining. I mean, he's one of the most down-to-earth track actors out there because he really is a fan, too. Yeah, it's great to see him every year. And he he goes out and talks to the fans and everything. He's really cool. Yeah. Starlog Magazine, issue number 15. Cover date, August of 1978. Log entries. Latest news from the worlds of science fiction. All right, so we have an article about the comic strip that was running in daily newspapers. And it was a Star Trek comic. So it was black and white. Nerico goes on to say that 
writers and artists were considered from around the world, and they scaled it down to Thomas Wartkin, a commercial artist, and he's from Venice, California. And he was writing and drawing what hopes to be, at this time, a major triumph. Now, here's the deal. We have the reprints of these in hardcover. I never saw these comic strips as a kid in my area. I used to be a paperboy for the New Haven Register in Connecticut. Never saw them before. So I was so excited when these reprints came out. Have you ever heard of the Star Trek comic strip in the 70s when you were a kid in South Georgia? No, I, I never saw it, and I always looked at the at the funnies, as they were called. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here's the problem that I found out after doing more investigation, is that newspapers just wanted a science fiction strip in there to break it up from Heathcliff and whatever else, Dagwood that was in there, Wizard of Id. So they picked either Star Trek or Star Wars. I know... Definitely in my area it was Star Wars because I used to cut out the strips with my grandfather. We would actually glue it into a notebook so it would be in sequential format so we could read it all in a row. I mean, it's a shame that we couldn't get both, but newspapers picked one or the other. Okay, well that's interesting. Not Star Wars wasn't in mine either. We didn't get a science fiction one. Hi, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Castro. And we are from that old podcast called 70s Trek and a new upcoming podcast called, Kelly? The Unofficial Trek. It's so new, I I never can remember it. That's right. The Unofficial Trek podcast, which is coming sometime in July. Kelly, I look at these and and I, I looked at the date on the inside cover. This is from August 1978. Yeah. I felt really old looking at this. Because you looked at it in real life when it first came out? (laughs) Wow, 1978. That doesn't seem that long ago. Uh, No, it doesn't. So what were your first impressions? Well, I mean, obviously, we just, we could back up and say this, um, this edition of Starlog and Susan's article is all about it's it's finally here. Star Trek the motion picture is finally been announced. It's official. Yeah. Yeah, you know, the first thing that struck me is that large photo of the cast. Yes. And there's a big either a banner or a big set behind them that says Star Trek and did you notice the font it was like from the 20s? Yeah. The 1920s, that is, not the 2020s. Right. Some kind of font from the 20s, but it's a Star Trek, and it's got this um, Phase 2 Enterprise. But, yeah, that's the first thing that grabs your attention, and it's kind of cool to see. It is. It is. And Susan is, I mean, throughout the whole thing, you can tell she's, like, giddy. She's, like, writing every little tidbit she can just to remember the moment. Yes, yes, yes. Like her opening line, and you mentioned it. it. It's official, Star Trek The Motion Picture, the once and future film, which has been in various stages of preparation at Paramount for three years, has been given the green light and more. And then she goes on to describe the centerpieces and the color scheme and the food that's being served. Every tiny detail. 
it reminded me of uh, the social page, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Describing one of the great weddings of a spring, you know, and the bride wore and the bride's mother wore and they served canopies and... <laughs> yes, she had the menu and everything. and then... She did. Oh, it's crazy. And then it's, it struck me, too, that this was not happening in August of 78. And I went back and did some research. This actually happened in March 28th, 1978. So right. nearly five months before. Yeah. So, yeah, there, I mean, big delay, but I, I that's publishing back then, I guess. It is exactly right. And, and I think you and I have talked about this in the past, but I remember reading. Um, do you remember getting Parade? In the Sunday paper, that, yes. the, the fold-out section. Right. And I remember, because we would look at that stuff every every Sunday, and I remember pulling out Parade that day and going, holy sh- ha- crap, excuse crap. me, my sword. There's Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock, and Dr. McCoy on the cover of this, and they're wearing, like, green work uniforms, going to the section where the article was and saying, holy crap. It's really happening. That was yeah. my first yeah. inclination that the movie was a go. Yes. And I had the same thing. I mean, it was it was Parade Magazine. Isn't that wild? It is. But, you know, non-internet, even non-cable, really, at that time. Right. It was pre-cable day. So it's not like you were going to turn on E and get the <laughs> updates on Star Trek. You know, no. none of that was happening. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so we were excited back then, too, obviously. Very. Very. I thought it was interesting that she said it was the first time that the cast had been together since the entire show stopped filming in 1969. Right. Right. I had that, too. So, um, and just how, she, you know, she was listing the names of the people in attendance, you know, cause it was a press conference, really 300 people at this press conference, this, you know, in uh paramount's old, what do they call them? Um, the old commissary commissaries, right. which wasn't a commissary anymore, I guess. Right. And some fancy caterer came in to do the food, but then, you know, she's listing off names, David Houston of Starlog and Future Magazines, you know, the editor of Famous Monsters, one of my favorite magazines back then. Um, Joe Tremble was covering for Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine. I thought that was interesting. I did, too. I, I didn't know about that connection. I didn't either. Yeah, I thought that was neat. So, and then, of course, the whole cast there, including... Um, Persis was there. That, Persis you know, Kambada. Yeah. Thanks. I knew I'd butcher that. I have no name. idea if I pronounced that correctly. Kambada I just went with good. it. See, sounds when you say it fast with confidence. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. But there was somebody missing from that lineup. Not the old cast, but they have Persis there, but not Stephen Collins. Let's see. This was before Seventh Heaven. So he wasn't doing that. No, wonder what he was doing. It wasn't Indiana Jones wasn't out yet, was it? So no, he, no. he did Way that before. knockoff of Indiana Jones on he TV. He did. I forgot that. Yeah. Oh, that's right. What was hey. that? I can't remember what that was called. But 
I didn't um, notice that he wasn't there, but I'm glad you said something about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, had he been cast at that point? I, I don't remember the, from the timeline. I think he had been because I, I thought think he, he had did, been, yeah. hadn't been cast for phase two. Yes. So, yeah, I guess he would have been cast for that. I um I thought it was interesting that um, Michael Eisner, who was essentially the head of Paramount at that time, in his remarks called Star Trek the number one TV event series of all times. TV event series. Series, right. I think he was really just pushing the enthusiasm, pushing yeah. the, yes. it's big, it's a TV event series. <laughs> and the picture they have him in the magazine, I mean, his... His smile, his teeth are almost so bright they blind you. <laughs> and it's black and white. Right, right. Susan Susan goes on to talk about all the people involved, too, that they had hired. Yes. Yeah. Now, this one, and you, you can run through some of them if you like, but this one stood out to me. Um, there's one person I thought who has been lost over the years. You know, in her report, she talks about the announcement that writer Dennis Linton Clark... Yeah. would polish the Harold Livingston and Gene Roddenberry script. I think he probably met the two of them, saw the angry friction and the negative energy between them and said, I'm, I'm out. out. I'm gone. Yep. I don't need to do this. <laughs> I because he, his name is nowhere on that production. I went out to IMDb just to check for sure. No, yep. it's nowhere near it. It's nowhere. nothing. Nope. nope. This is the only mention that within the script. It, it is. So, Mr. Clark, smart on you for getting out of there. <laughs> yes. Um, the budget was set at $15 million. It got a little bigger than that, ballooned right. up to 43 Right. But Eisner said um, something to the effect of this was the, the cost of, or at least the cost of all 79 original episodes. Yes. So let's do some, let's have some fun with numbers for a minute. Okay. So the average cost. Like my calculator. I'm having some fun here. The average cost per episode was around 180000 Right. Some were got more money in the first season. Some got less money in the third season. Times 79 episodes. That is about. $14,220,000. And they said it was a $15 million budget in the beginning. Yeah. So he was right. Yeah. In the estimation, the original estimation. Right. Missed missed the mark that it became way off. But (laughs) I I thought that was pretty cool that he was pretty much on the mark with that. Yeah, I did, too. I wonder Um, if they used that as the gauge of how much should this budget be? Maybe. That's an interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Maybe. Hmm. Maybe. I thought it was neat that uh, Joe Jennings, who was the assistant art director on the original series, In this piece, it was announced that he would serve as the art director for the motion picture. So I thought that was a nice promotion for Joe. And, of course, Jerry Goldsmith being announced as um, the musical director. I don't know what you call it. Composer. Composer. Yep. So. Doing the music. Yep. Which we all know is fantastic. Oh, fantastic. One of the best scores, I think, of any Star oh, yeah. Trek movies. Absolutely. Yes. Go back to Bob Turner and Kelly Casto sitting in our uh, fraternity room 
listening to the soundtrack of Star Trek the Motion Picture over and over and over again. Do you remember? So you and I didn't know each other when Star Trek Two came out, but we knew each other when Three came out. And you remember yes. buying that album? We were oh, like, wow, gosh. listen to this. It's a great piece. Yes, yes. Yeah, it's a wonder we had dates at um, that time. Yeah. Go figure. I think the only reason we had dates is because we, well, whatever. Um, I thought it was interesting. That's a whole other show. Production was scheduled for July 1978. Right. Yeah, that didn't happen. Um, And the release was set for summer 1979. Yeah. That didn't happen. That that didn't happen either. And then, of course, there was a lot of interest in Leonard Nimoy being there, right? Because he had not been interested right in phase two well and and i like the question that he got which was you know basically why were you so reluctant to sign Nimoy? <laughs> what's what's he say and He's, she quotes him she we does had a long and complicated relationship paramount myself <laughs> i mean he should just put a period right there that's all you needed to say yeah. he kept going he kept going Yes, he did. The the thing that took the most time was the fact that the mail service between here and Vulcan is still pretty slow. Yeah. I, it's not that funny now. I'm not no. sure it was that funny then. No. No. Uh-uh. No. I think he tried his best to make light of it. And I think so. Yeah, just, you know. Can you imagine, like, making that joke and being all smiley and the rest of the room is like, huh? What did he <laughs> like, say? There's no mail service to Vulcan. Yeah. What? Come on, Leonard. We know what happened. He does. He does say it. It's not a matter of reluctance. We had a lot of details to iron out. The Spock character has always been part of my life. I've never tried in any way to reject that. Except when I wrote the book, I am not Spock. <laughs> I'm very proud of the fact that I'm associated with the character, and I look forward to playing the character because I certainly wouldn't want either one of two things anybody else playing it or Star Trek happening without it. Right. And I kind of do believe that. I'm sure. I, oh yeah. You know. Yeah. And and we all we all agree with it. You can't have the original cast without Spock. Uh, absolutely. And you know what? And that was the genius of Robert Wise seeing that, of recognizing that. Yes. Because they were ready to move forward in phase 2 without him. Right. You know, they had the the Zahn character. Yes. Um, quite frankly, I think they were ready to move forward without Shatner. That's why they brought in Stephen Collins, you know, right. and the Decker character. They yep. were thinking, I think, of phasing out the older characters. But I, I, I applaud Robert Wise for recognizing this can't work yes. without Spock. Well, and wasn't it his wife who said that, who told him that? That's right. Oh, you have a good memory. That's right. Because really, she was. But... Because she was a fan. Yes. And she said, you you can't do this without Mr. Spock. Yeah, that's right. right. Very good. Good memory. Yeah. Well, it happens sometimes. Yeah. I thought um, there was a quote by Gene Roddenberry at the end of the piece that I thought was interesting. He yes. says, quote, we will be talking about something that we think is very important, unquote. Yeah. There, there was also. <laughs> I, yeah, there's a lot to say there. Yeah. Because it ends up being something he's talked about before 
during the original series. Yeah. Talking about the nature of God and the creator and machines that get confused with God and right. So right. we're going to it is very important and we're going to talk about it again. He's really what he should have said. Yes. I yeah, didn't well, get it right the first three times I tried it in the 60s. So we're going to try it one more time. One more time. Maybe two more times. We're critical because we care. Just one more time. Oh, absolutely. 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 You were going to say something and I interrupted. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I was interrupting you. So uh, I like where, and I'm trying to, to remember where this is. Um, oh, it was, it was about. It was a question. Let's see. What has become of the proposed television series of Star Trek? Oh, that's right. So Susan, right. She kind of went into um, questions in, from the mailbag, right? Right, right. Yes. Right. And so so Eisner says our hope now is that Star Trek, the motion picture, will be the first of a series of fantastic Star Trek pictures every three years. But then Roddenberry jumps in. And and says, uh, Star Trek will certainly return to TV one day. <laughs> and I'm just, you know, I wish I could have been there just for that piece of, you know, the ang- all the angst of Gene Absolutely. over the years pent up. And he just had to burst that out. And no Be- other way to say it but burst. It- it- and it's so interesting, too, because you've got two guys sitting there with two different agendas. You've got Michael Eisner of Paramount looking at Fox and Star Wars going, we got to get more movies on the stuff out. we got to get this out. Let's right. get this made. We've got to take on Star Wars. We're years late. And there's Gene going, but we'll make more TV, too. Yep. <laughs> Don't forget, we're coming back. Too much. Are you middle-aged or older and attend Dragon Con? Then check out the Dragon Con Over 40 Club on Facebook. It's a place where we share tips, socialize, and just have fun. In the meantime, stay tuned for more exciting programming from Star Pod Track. We're going to discuss this article, Twilight Zone, Rod Serling's Dream. Now, some listeners right now might be saying, well, didn't you already cover this in Star Pod Log, your other podcast about sci-fi in general? And we're going to say, yes, we did. But this time we're going to look at the article through the lens of a Star Trek fan. Now, if you've been following us at conventions, you might have caught the panel that we've given numerous times entitled The Connection Between Star Trek and Twilight Zone. I mean, we're still in the process of taking our panel discussions and transferring them to YouTube. And if you're a YouTube subscriber, thank you. Please be patient. We will post this because we've done in-depth analysis of the connection between Star Trek and Twilight Zone. Cutie Pie, are there just a few connections? No, there are actually lots of connections. Absolutely. So let's talk about some of the most obvious ones, that being the actors. Uh, what are some of the actors that we've seen both in Star Trek and in the Twilight Zone? I mean, most notably William Shatner, of course. Absolutely. And, yeah. Two of the top-rated Twilight Zone episodes feature Captain Kirk, before he was Captain Kirk. Yes, one of the most popular episodes with him. Uh, and, of course, Leonard Nimoy was on it. Yes. And James Doohan, George Takei. <laughs> it's, I mean, we're just talking about the bridge crew here. 
that were on Twilight Zone. That's amazing to think that. Variety of other ones as well. Susan Oliver. Uh, William Wyndham. Uh, Joanne Linville. John Hoyt. Michael Forrest. I mean, the list goes on and on. You have to figure television during that time. Character actors you were seeing quite often on a variety of shows, whether it be I Dream of Jeannie, Gilligan's Island, because there was only a, a small pool of actors that were playing various roles on different shows. So it, it was finite, the, the talent pool, as well as the amount of shows that were, you were watching. So, of course, you're going you're gonna to see quite a few crossovers. I think what's most notable, though, is the relationship that Gene Roddenberry had with Rod Serling. And we can't say that th this is something that shouldn't be addressed at all because they had a wonderful relationship. In fact, we discussed it on a previous episode when we were reviewing Starlog Magazine issue 2. Rod Serling actually lamented the day that Star Trek was canceled – I could have cut off heads at the network. It was a marvelous show. Yeah, that's so awesome that, that he was a fan. And and Gene was a fan of his. you got to remember, Twilight Zone came out first. 1959 it started airing. And Gene was picking the brain of Rod Serling before he created Star Trek, before it went, went on the air. And he was asking him, how did you weave in various issues, get past the network censors, and be able to display the message that you want without getting cut off. Well, that, that is not entirely the case. We know the episode with George Takei that was censored in some areas. I mean, Twilight Zone has a lot of parallels with censorship, just like Star Trek did. But the interesting thing that really made Star Trek go in a different direction that Gene might have originally not thought of, Rod said, look, you can't do it all yourself. You have to get some help. I recommend getting help from the talent in the science fiction literary world because they get it and they already have a fan base and they could bring this fan base into the medium of television. And that was a stroke of genius. Yeah, I mean, it, it helped the, the popularity of, of Star Trek a lot. When, when it came on, I mean, a lot of the Twilight Zone fans went over to Star Trek, of course. If you're a Richard Matheson fan, you went to Star Trek. If you're a Theodore Sturgeon fan, you went to Star Trek. That idea of pulling talent from the literary science fiction world really helped Star Trek gain grounding, footing as not just a bug-eyed monster of the week show, but something that had some meat to it, some depth to it. And Gene Roddenberry did credit Rod Serling with promoting that idea. So we have a crossover with the writers and the actors. Absolutely. And, and of course, episodes like, uh, like Charlie X... Oh, boy. When you watch Charlie X, you almost wish, wait for him to say, let's wish him in the cornfield. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> People are alike all over in the cage. I mean, those are episodes. Not only did they have Susan Oliver in it, but they had similar themes, putting humans in cages where aliens would view them. The lateness of the hour and Requiem for Methuselah. I mean, it's the parallels are so uncanny there. The mute and the empath both involve... Females who couldn't speak that have ESP. When you were young, did you see strong connections between Twilight Zone and Star Trek? I did. There were, you know, similar stories that you that you could tell. Mm -hmm. We can't understate the the importance of Star Trek fans checking out the original version of Twilight Zone because we do see not only crossovers in front of the camera, 
but also behind the camera. This is Eternal Zan, founder of the Cult of Marriott Carpet. If you'd like to join us, we still have available spaces in our parade group. Check out our Facebook page at facebook.com slash cult of Marriott Carpet, all one word. In the meantime, stay tuned for more exciting info on StarPod Trek. Hello and uh, welcome. This is Antonio J. Porras Valverde. I'm originally from Costa Rica, but currently I'm in the United States. I'm a PhD candidate in astrophysics at Vanderbilt University here in Nashville, Tennessee. And I study galaxy evolution information. I'm a theorist. And today I'm going to talk about the interplanetary excursions Mars and Valley's Marineris. Mars was one of humanity's oldest colony worlds and the location of Utopia Planitia Fleet Yards, a massive Starfleet shipbuilding facility in the Star Trek universe. Okay, so uh, when I started reading this article, I, I must admit I was not sure if um, what I was reading was actual true facts or if it was something... Um, kind of like sci-fi but then I started looking at these missions and I, I, I was not aware of so many missions being done in in, a, in several of these planets and um, something that impressed me was also to learn about um, Mars and and how um, its structures kind of resemble what we see now as uh, in this article at least what they uh, mention uh, comparison with the Grand Canyon so um it really um, made me happy to hear about this part because I recently traveled from Tennessee all the way to California and uh, through my cross country I decided to uh, also visit the Grand Canyon and so I liked how they uh, opened the article by describing how vast the Grand Canyon is like about 20 kilometer um, in length uh, and um about two kilometers deep something that uh from my experience in the grand canyon uh looking at the different colors of the rocks and also the different uh shapes of them and the um the uh, lines that were also marked down and much of that can tell you the age of the rocks themselves and and the formation and um i like how in this article um, they compare it to what they, it has been observed by the Mariner 9 mission um, while flying by Mars. And um, so this, this mission uh, flew by the Valis Marineris um, area in, in, in Mars and, and found that this valley, that, that it could be like, like the Grand Canyon, is is just like the Grand Canyon, but it's extended, and you can think of the extent the extent of this valley if you go from New York's Central Park all the way to Los Angeles, and that is something that they mention here. And so it's incredible to just think about being inside that canyon. If I were to, there are tours if you were to go into the Grand Canyon and and camp there and and so on. It is dangerous. Um, you are really close to this giant walls but in this case 
you could be we could very well have a large city within this canyon and you know be be within that canyon uh, you may be like protected by by tornadoes and so on just like many other cities in in, in on earth uh, that have that, that are inhabited inhabited in in valleys um, but something uh, I liked about this article is the the image that is attached and and there's two people on the floor um, with a spacecraft in there and a, fl a f like a plane passing by I'm gonna assume this is Star Trek I've never watched Star Trek so I'm sorry about that I will have to do it at some point I'm a bad astronomer uh, but I liked about this is the detail the details of the of the mountain itself it's not just like one mountain there's like um, structure formation rock formation there there's like small small mountains kind of like um, one almost one next to the other and it's a climbable mountain like I would I would probably be able to do that within a day or two um, I definitely wouldn't want to if I were in Mars because even though there hasn't been any life uh, or intelligent life um, discovered I don't want to even discover it myself if I were to be there and be the first person but in any case um, another thing that they I liked about this article is that they describe what could have caused this valley and um, they mention it could be minute processes resulting in wind, rocks, slides, meteorite impacts, mass wasting, geophysical jargon for debris simply slipping downward and often gradually, volcanism, subterranean melting tremors, and etc. And I would also uh, add in the uh, the, the um, if if there is any plate tectonic movement and earthquakes. Although that may be up for debate based on, you know, the, the, um, the geological, uh, characteristics of the planet itself. And I don't know if we actually know much of that yet. Um, and I'm definitely not an expert on planetary sciences. So, um, I'm here speculating, but something that, um, when I read of this, I also thought of this, um, meteorite that I, I visited in Arizona. I forgot the name. Uh, it's some, some like it's in the middle of nowhere. But as you're driving by, like there is a a sign of of this giant mirror impact meteorite uh, crater, crater, and 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 you go there, and it's a really nice experience just to go. You don't go into the crater, but you go close to it, and you see inside the crater, and you can see that much of the um, of the edges have been eroded given this uh, what people what, what they say here as the mass wasting which is like debris slipping down downward gradually and this happens throughout you know throughout time um, and and something that I, I learned from that trip is that whenever there is a, some giant crater um, airplanes need to be careful uh, not to fly over it and started made me think about um, how some of these valleys could potentially also like influence winds, um, and and how like in in the future when we are uh, traveling to planets that are um, more so rock, rocky planets or or some that have some in, some impact craters, how um, we should be careful about those things. 
future conventions. Okay, Starlog gives us a series of conventions that are being promoted for the year of 1978. In fact, there was the 1978 Deep Science Fiction Convention in Atlanta, Georgia, run by Heritage Press Incorporated, Forest Park, Georgia, June 2nd, 3rd, and 4th of 1978. Have you ever heard of that con before? No, I haven't heard of that one. The Deep Science Fiction Convention. Odyssey 1, out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, June 24th, 1978, run by Infinite Star Productions. Star Trek Atlanta, in Atlanta, Georgia, June 30th through July 2nd. But it's run by a company out of Staten Island, New York. What about that, Star Trek Atlanta? No. Hmm, I mean, of course curious. I wasn't going to cons at this time. But, oh, of course not. But, yeah, no, but, but I, I never even heard of some of these. Like, usually we'll hear people talk about them. Never if there's some that ones. became popular. And if you meet mm-hmm. people who have been going to cons that long. Yes, yeah. yes. Because, like, Atlantic Fantasy Fair, that's an epic one that was of years ago. Dixie yeah. Trek. Well, I went to that one, though. Dixie Trek. Yeah. You went to Dixie Trek, too? Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Those are ones people speak of fondly. These are some, I guess they only ran a couple years. They weren't weren't as, as big. From time to time on nightly newscasts, there is a phrase heard that goes something like this. And so another science fiction concept becomes reality right before our very eyes. It will be said more and more frequently in the next few years as man's technological achievements catch up with the SF writer's uncanny ability to predict them. Here is an inside look at just how accurate they've been, how some of the top writers in the field go about it. SF Prediction Speculation or Future Fact by Michael A. Banks. I think it's funny that constantly in Starlog, instead of writing out science fiction, they call it SF. Not even sci-fi. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was probably just to save space. And But there, there was an article, I mean, someone had written a letter in a previous issue about saying sci-fi. It was considered, what, derogatory back then. And, so and they we, couldn't say that. And we know um, Forrest J. Ackerman came up with that term sci-fi. Yeah, so it is okay. Yeah. Of course. He's a super fan. Yeah. So SF prediction, science fiction prediction. And we know that Star Trek is credited with planting that seed in so many people's minds about what can be done with the future of mankind, especially with technology. When we had flip phones, I remember when I first got my flip phone, I kept pretending it was a communicator. Yeah. Yeah. That's, there are so many things from, from Star Trek that people have talked about. The, the cell phone. I mean, I mean, well, they have said that the idea for those for those flip phones came from Star Trek, and well, the pads came from Star Trek too. The Apple iPad. Yeah. Yes, having those um, the pads, the ones on TNG that were, and it was P A D D pad. Mm-hmm. So I mean, science fiction in general has been a visionary source for real world science and you got to figure this is 1978 when this article came out and there were certain realities that were coming to the fore i mean it also talks about things like from the 40s and 50s that were written in sci-fi stories that did come true and we know that gene roddenberry was influenced by this era this is what yes. he would have been reading yes definitely so, so the idea of just just having spaceships I mean, that's a very common thread. Of course, that was around before Star Trek, but Star Trek also had its version. And it it was just so cool to see that. Like, now you expect that in in science fiction. 
we still don't have starships today. Even the like the the main computer on the Enterprise, and it has been compared to more like a, a mainframe computer in real life. And there there aren't a lot of mainframes around now, but it's the kind of computer that stays on all the time. And the whole the whole computer is is all interconnected. You just have terminals going from that main computer, and that's pretty much like the one on the Enterprise. Uh, but it, but it's also akin to what we have now in businesses. We have networks where you have individual computers, but each one um, is tied into the network. So you can have certain things you can keep on your computer that the network cannot see, but other things that you access, everybody accesses the same network, and they can they can get to it. Absolutely true. And we look at Isaac Asimov. I mean, he and Gene Roddenberry were like peas and carrots. I still say if we ever had a fourth or fifth season of Star Trek, possibly we could have had an episode written by him, which would be incredible. But as early as 1950, in one of his books, he wrote about a calculator, a something that was used, put in a pocket that was used for calculations. And we know that tricorders were very similar. You know, you had like a portable computer to a degree. That's become reality totally. I mean, I never really associated a calculator with a tricorder, but you mean as a personal computer, yes. Exactly. Um, you got to figure back then that was unheard of. That was unthought. You, you got to figure computers in the 1950s took up entire rooms. So to have something that could be put on a personage, no possible way would that be science reality to, to people in those people's minds in a relatively short period of time. The way I see it is the, I mean, because I was thinking about that, like on Star Trek, people, people don't carry around a calculator mm-hmm. in their pocket. They don't. Well, they don't really have pockets <laughs> in a lot of them. They don't have. They don't carry around. Um, you know, the, like the way we carry our, our smartphones now. We mm-hmm. take them everywhere, and, and you don't see that on the Enterprise. They don't. They don't. I mean, you know, on away missions, they they carry a tricorder, but not everyone has the tricorder. Usually, just the science officer and the medical officer. Do you think that they sit in the toilet and just look at their tricorder? Maybe they do, <laughs> but um, but their technology is still different. You know how they have those those pads. Mm-hmm. The thing is, on Star Trek, they have like like they're sticking. They're in some ways it was still old style technology from the time it was made because you've got the they had a different pad for each subject, and and one captain would have on his desk you know five different pads exactly. And that's not the way we picture it today. You you store everything in one place. You don't you don't need a separate uh, data storage. Um, object pad for, for I think each some thing. of it's for ease though because at, on your job you you have two screens for your job and then you have a PC in front of you and your phone so anytime I look at you you have four screens in front of you okay is it possible that in, in well well that's just that's just to look at that's not it's not about storing data that's just to make it easier to see do you think that that's what they do though that's what that's what when I see a bunch of pads on a on on a table like what captain Picard has I think it's more of ease instead of just okay through the it could files. be yeah it could be because I do have a problem with my smart smartphone the fact that you can only see one screen at a time if you want to see two screens at a time then it's a lot harder to see each one so yeah I can see that Okay, another thing that the article brought out is that there are certain elements of science that science fiction really can't predict because there are certain developments that come up totally by accident. Yeah. I, well, I mean, one thing is they, they no one ever predicted the Internet. I mean, that was never in – there was nothing even – like even a hint of it in sci-fi stories or anything. 
So I, could, I couldn't think of anything. I mean, I could yeah. be wrong, but I couldn't think of anything where the entire world would be connected to this much information. I mean, the, even yeah. even on Star Trek, we have Memory Alpha. Well, that was like a storage that library. That would be a storage library, but that's like the closest thing that we can see in Star Trek that would be like the Internet, but nothing where every single person, where everyone is connected on all different aspects of their lives. That's true. I mean, I mean, maybe on one planet, everybody does maybe could access the same uh, computer database. And what about like virtual reality? I mean, VR has has that has never really taken off in our time. I mean, you know, when when it first came out, and they even had Dave and Buster's where you could go put on the headset and, and experience VR. I didn't like it. Yeah, yeah. See, that's what I mean. It hasn't that one that idea hasn't really taken off as well in our reality. So the closest thing that we would have pre-1978 to a holodeck or a virtual reality would be the animated series Recreation Room. Yes. I mean, if we had something really like that, that would be cool, but we just we still haven't quite gotten to that yet. And um, a replicator is pretty much like a like the 3D printers we have now. I mean, it's that we only do inanimate, inanimate objects and not food, but it is... But, um, but that's just uh, another great thing, 3D printers, which you can say... Could have been inspired by Star Trek replicators that being able to make something. That is true. The article goes on to make a good point of the things that science fiction has predicted in the future is not only things, but uh, a mentality, a, a lifestyle. And I think Star Trek epitomizes this. The article says, I think we're moving into a time which the average person will have to go on learning all the days of his life, and inevitably the race will go to the swift, those who have the greatest capacity to learn. Now, you got to figure, in my grandfather's era, he only graduated sixth grade. That's it. Like, that was, it wasn't uncommon to have people that did not go on further. They got a job, and they just moved on with their life. They didn't really, like, they kind of toiled away. Whereas nowadays, we're more adapt to continuously learn, to continuously better ourselves. And we see in Star Trek's future, it never ends. So I think that is totally a science fiction that's turned into a science fact, and even more so in Star Trek's future. The the older generations, um, it was more important to be able to work on a farm, things like that. And and yeah, education wasn't as, as important. In my in my parents' families, both of them had there were people in their families that didn't finish school because it, education was not considered as important back then. But but now it. It, it is considered more important. And yeah, we, we, the, it's, it is more of the educated people who have invented these things, these pieces of technology we're talking about. And for us to be able to, to learn these things. Yeah. And they're saying the more adaptable people are the ones that will survive. The ones who, who learn to use their smartphone because there are some older people who, who don't use smartphones. Yeah. And, and we see in Star Trek's future, that's a constant that, People don't even want to get away from their jobs because their jobs are their passion. Because they're constantly growing, they're constantly contributing. Their their lives are linked with Starfleet and the betterment of themselves and others. And they don't work for money, as they have said. So so the the reason they have to work is because they want to. We you know that's been debatable because that's that's been a inconsistent. So. Well, yeah, it has. <laughs> it has been inconsistent because maybe not money as we know it, but there is some sort of credit system because they have to pay for things. 
at, at Quark's Bar and of such course. like that. Yes. And even there's a gift shop on the original series Enterprise. Remember there was a mention of that? Uhura yes. went down to the gift shop. So obviously there has to be some sort of trade agreement, some sort of cryptocurrency. We don't know. <laughs> They have mentioned, yeah, they've mentioned some things, but they've also mentioned, as you said, the um, the idea that they work to better themselves and everyone else. The article goes on to say that the science fiction writers of the past have looked to solar power, and we've seen that as definitely touched on in Star Trek of using different type of energy sources, uh, different than the fossil fuels that we use and things coming from the planet. And that was interesting too. I, I think in reality, they, they haven't really, um, they haven't been able to get as much energy from solar power as they thought they could. But it, it's still a good idea and it's still, it, I mean, it's still a very usable and as they said, it's a free source. I mean, because the sun is there and will be there for billions of years. And that's one of the things I'm surprised that Star Trek hasn't addressed more so. What, solar power? Mm-hmm. I think that, well, I mean, in, in, in space, they're not as close to a sun to always use a sun. I mean, they would have to be, be closer to, to one constant sun, probably. The only time I remember seeing something reference to solar power was in Picard. They showed the Golden Gate Bridge has been transformed into a series of solar cells. Yeah, so on Earth, they could yeah. have, they could definitely use it more. I was thinking more about the space, a spaceship flying, going around to different places mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to as much. Now, the article does state, though, that they don't see cars going away in the future. Yeah, because people want their own personal transportation. Yes. Yeah, you want to be able to, to go where you want. I mean, you can use public transportation sometimes. It still has its use. But as long as you're able to drive yourself, you, you want to be able to do that. So, yeah, I think people will still have cars. Did we see any references to motor vehicles in Star Trek's future? Like, I'm trying to think, and I really don't see a lot of references to it. No, there's not, because it, it's not as much about about Earth or individual planets. And the So on, on each planet, they, they have transports, and you see them more, they're being, to me, they're more like shuttlecrafts mm-hmm. to go from one place on a planet to another, or they just transport with, with the transporter. Yeah, because it says that even most science fiction writers agree that Yes, public transportation is going to be the future of mankind, and this is written in 1978, but people do want their own personal space. And so that, we we look at Enterprise, the TV series, we see not many references even when they were on Earth. I think Star Trek has kind of stayed away from what vehicles are going to look like in the future, what transportation is going to be like on Earth in the future. And I think people expected it to be like the Jetsons. I mean, they thought like that by the year 2000, we would have the the flying cars that can go as high as a skyscraper. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But we haven't gotten to that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Ready? Activate. One. Look at the stars. You can turn your room into a planetarium with a Star Trek intergalactic projector. Enterprise approaching Big Dipper. Accurately shows all the constellations. These cards help you identify them. Enemy craft from Jupiter. While these light beam pointers let you play Star Trek like never before. Runs on 2D and 2AA cell batteries not included. 
Star Trek Intergalactic Projector comes with light beam pointers and identification cards by Migo. Starlog Magazine, issue number 16, September 1978. Hi, I'm Bob Turner. And I'm Kelly Casto. And we are of the podcast 70s Trek and also the upcoming unofficial Trek podcast. And we looked at Starlog issue 16 from September 1978. Um Kelly, can I give you my take on this Star Trek report real quick? Yeah, yeah, please. I, I know it's going to be very complicated and deep. It, it so. will be. It will be. And this is um, obviously written by Susan Sackett. Um, here's, here's my take on this one. We're busy. Don't bother us. We'll tell you when we have some news. Here's a little bit of news. Joe Jennings is out as art director. Here's some mail. Well, that's it for this issue. <laughs> Yes, she wrote a whole lot more, but I, that's basically the essence of it, I thought. There's not a whole lot more. No, no. <laughs> Let's start, though. Um, when we were talking before we, we recorded, you had mentioned the photo yeah. in this Star Trek report. It the grabs your attention. It, it does. And and it, it, it actually, you look at it and you're just amazed of the wires and everything you see. This is a this is a panel apparently from the science station on the bridge, the, you know, the science console on the bridge, and it's the backside. So there's, you know, you see two by fours and framing and, and like a million miles of wire and looks like speakers. And in one little section, there's a red light bulb um, and some flip switches. And it, and you look at it and you go, wow, that is really cool. Just as, you know, I want a closer look. And you read the caption on the side, and it basically says, this was the science console, or it didn't say the console, but the bridge. Uh, but we scrapped it because we now have $15 million to spend on a new uh, bridge, and we're going to make it much better and more detailed. It's a First of all, it's a fascinating photo, right? It is. Uh, you know, they do such a good job. You, you've heard the term movie magic. It's beautiful and clean on the bridge side of the bridge, you know, when you're looking at these sets. On the back side, holy crap, it looks like something you and I did on a weekend, throwing wires and stuff together. Yeah. it's To say that it's a rat's nest would be an understatement. But it got the job done. Right. But yes, to then look at this and go, well, this is pretty complex, and they scrapped it. They just scrapped it. Trash. It just wasn't good enough for the motion picture. It was okay for TV, but not the detail they needed for the motion picture. So right. that's pretty crazy. I agree. Yeah. Well, I, I, go ahead. I, nothing. Go ahead, please. So the other, the other part before it got to the mailbag um, really was – Livingston is back in the office with Gene Roddenberry polishing the script. <laughs> well, who was the guy from the last issue that's in? Mr. Clark. Mr. Clark, yes. Yeah, again, no no mention of him that he's out Mr. or anything. Mr. Den Dennis Linton Clark, no mention. He, it didn't last long with Mr. Clark, did it? It did not. It mm -hmm. did not. 
So I thought that was Can't fun. you imagine that meeting? Right? He walks into the room on Monday after the announcement. There's Harold Livingston. There's Gene Roddenberry. And they're just going at it. And he's like, uh, this isn't worth it. I'm out. Uh, I left something in the car. I'll be right back. And he never shows back up again. Right. Right. Yeah. What was your take? I gave you my take on, on this Star Trek report. What was your take on well, you? You nailed it. I mean, it um, from the report perspective, that was pretty much it. I, I had the impression that they're busy with the production. You know, the announcement had came the, the month before. Yeah. And they're busy in the middle of it. And right. that's perfectly understandable. It there's, is. There's a lot to do. They're taking what was a TV movie and ramping it up for the big screen. There's a lot that needs done and a lot that needs changed. And I think that's the uh, that was the idea behind the photo, too, is even all of this isn't acceptable when you're going to the, the yeah. heights of a motion picture. Yeah. Yeah, and that, I mean, the non-snarky approach to this is exactly that is yeah it, this just it was good but not just it wasn't good enough for the big screen yeah i in um some of our work for uh 70s trek we talked about the model if you yes. remember for phase two it's sad to say that model was three quarters of the way complete and yes. they scrapped it they didn't even work on that and make it more detailed for the right. motion picture. It was just thrown out. Anybody know where that was put? I'd love to go find uh, that. Yeah. Right? Let me know. I'll, I know I'll, it. I'll get it. Can you imagine just, I think about the, the trip of that model out of the studio into the dumpster. It's in some landfill someplace. Just makes me sick to think about. Yep. Some intern or, or page had the best time just throwing it in the dumpster thinking it's flying through space. Oh, and yeah, look at this. Oh. Right into the doomsday machine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's so sad. So sad. It is. But, yeah, you know, it's understandable for what they're going through. Hey, look, we're busy. Um, there's not a lot of news right now because everything's in process, which isn't for it doesn't make an interesting Star Trek report, unfortunately, but right. it is what it is. Right. And, and that's what I took from it. And you've got to imagine that she's in the thick of it, too. She is. And she's like, I got to get this thing done. I mean, yeah, if you so. look, she's she wrote one, two, three, four, five paragraphs before bailing out and going, let's take some mail. Right. <laughs> let's talk about some of the mail. for minutes, Let's talk too. about the mail. <laughs> Did you have any favorites? Um. Let's see. So, all I I got throughout this whole thing was Susan saying, and I have the only book that's going to be coming out about this called The Making of Star Trek The Motion Picture. <laughs> she, she did mention that. A uh, couple times. She did. She did. She did mention that. You're right. Um it's funny, too, because she had encouraged folks to write letters, and then it seemed like she didn't want to answer the letters. Or yeah. I don't know. I don't know if that's fair or not. For example, Douglas Zimmer from Spokane 
asks, are there any plans for the rejected motion picture scripts for to, to be used for maybe a Star Trek II movie? A lot of people are curious to hear what Gene Roddenberry, John Black, Alan Scott, not the first Green Lantern, and Chris Bryant had to say in those scripts. Will we get a chance to see them? And, um, of course, her answer was, there are presently no plans for publishing any of these scripts. Yes. She did say somewhere uh, in the diatribe there that she'll be covering those. Um, in, in what again? There's treatment in her book, oh, oh, a The book? Making of Star Trek, The Motion Picture. Oh, wow. That's great. That's funny. Yeah. I I really... So I like the question about um, will the specs for the Enterprise be the same as the Franz Joseph blueprints? And she went off in, in a nice way, but she went off basically saying that Matt Jeffries did a great job, but they're not canon. They are not Gene and um, Matt Jeffries you know plans They're, basically Franz Joseph wrote a book he created the plans on speculation really right not from Jeffrey's blueprints and she's saying they're not canon so we're not doing that yeah don't, don't ask me again <laughs> <laughs> but magic cam is going to be building a new model oh, right magic cam they weren't employed very long no then it went to Robert Abel they were employed too long. Right. Good point. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. It was. It's a good read. It's an interesting article. I think what you find from it is that that they're busy, and and they needed. She needed to fulfill a Star Trek report and needed to crank this out rather quickly. I, right. That's my impression. Yeah, yeah, mine too, and. You know, the last question, which is, will Joseph uh, and B. Joe Trimble change their books to match Star Trek The Motion Picture? And, of course, what does Susan say? There are no plans except for my book. <laughs> I think I think we've covered oh, this. I think we may <laughs> have. And it's easy to sit here and be snarky some 40 yeah. years later, you know. Yes. And and Susan, if you're listening, we love you. Yes. We don't mean to pick on you. I liked at the end too, um, the update on the William Shatner fan club. I'm being sincere about Ooh, this. Yes. Again, it's it's pre internet. It's pre you know, yeah. there's no way of knowing this. And so she nicely says, Hey, th there's a new address for the William Shatner fan club. Here it is. So that yes. just kind of gives you a hint of the world, right? Back in nineteen seventy eight. We love that you want to be part of the fan club. If you're interested, well, now here's a new address. There's no other right. way to get that out. Right. There's no other way. That word of mouth and and publications like this. It's how did we learn of anything I, back I in the know. 70s and 80s? I don't know. We Google. No, we did. What was a Google back then? Seriously, I remember asking myself questions. I wonder how that happens. Did we just accept that we didn't know and move on? Because now it's like Google. Oh, that's how they do that. Right. Huh? I don't figure. know. That's, mm -hmm. a, again, another topic for another podcast. It is. It is. 
Red Alert, shields up, load torpedoes. On board the Artemis Spaceship Bridge Simulator, you and your crew take command of the TSN Cygnus and defend Terran space against an alien invasion. Work together as a team in an interactive simulator environment created by Command Flight Adventure. Does your crew have what it takes to survive? Book your session today at commandflightadventure.com. Report to the bridge at Sanctuary Gaming in Clarksville, Tennessee. Alan Dean Foster, SF's hottest young writer. In 1970, Alan Dean Foster began his writing career with a tongue-in-cheek letter to an editor. Today, the 31-year-old traipses regularly through the literary realms populated by Star Trek's crew, Luke Skywalker, and loyal mini-drags. Now, our first exposure to Alan Dean Foster was through... The Star Trek Logs. All right, now, when we do a Star Trek rewatch of both the original series and the animated series, now, we do have those reviews on YouTube, so... If you haven't checked it out, definitely look at our YouTube page to find these reviews. We do something a little bit different. We First, we read the adaptation. And if it's the original series, it's James Blish. But if it's the animated series, it's Alan Dean Foster. We read the adaptation, and then we watch the episode. And we say, okay, what is a little bit different from the adaptation to the animated series episode, in this case of Alan Dean Foster, and we're finding out the Alan D. Foster logbooks are incredible because there's so much more information that that short 20-something minute animated series episode does not contain. Just like he uh, says in this interview, he wanted to add a lot more to it. So, yeah, so he fleshes out the stories, and his his logbooks are really good. They're, They're more complete stories than what we saw on the animated series. Yeah, it's it's amazing. This era was monumental for Alan Dean Foster because he had been working on the Star Trek logs and he was signed up to do the sequel book to Star Wars. George Lucas didn't really think that Star Wars would be a massive hit. He thought it would be successful, but not to the degree it was. He planned on making a series of sequels, but he didn't think it, he could afford to make them the way he wanted to. So he actually scaled back some of the characters and some of the scenes so he could make a like a made-for-TV movie continuing the adventures of Luke Skywalker. Well, that book became Splinter of the Mind's Eye, which was penned by Alan Dean Foster. So he's credited as like the earliest writer for doing both franchises, Star Wars and Star Trek. I mean, that's a that's an incredible accolade to have such early on in his life. It it is. That's really neat. And and, and also you see how how young he was too. Mm-hmm. Um. So so yeah, Splinter in the Mind's Eye was supposed to have been. I mean, he had to write it as something that they could make on a lower budget instead instead of making it this big story with all the space battles. Exactly. I mean, I love the book. Yes, this is a Star Trek segment of of our podcast, but. A lot of us are bitrectual. We like both Star Wars and Star Trek. That is a definitely worthwhile read. So when I think of writers that do both Star Wars and Star Trek, two names come up. John Jackson Miller and... Alan Dean Foster. As well, yeah, and Christy Golden. That's another one I was just thinking of. Yeah, so there are various bitrectual yes. writers. But with regards to 
his background, Alan Dean Foster, it's funny how he got the ball rolling. He actually started out just doing articles in magazines before he was picked up, his talents were picked up and noticed as something more than writing articles. And I mean, so he had to keep trying basically in order to break into writing, which is what what a lot of a lot of writers had to do. I, I thought it was interesting that the way he got to write for for Star Trek was, well, well when he wrote for the motion picture, it, it was because Gene liked his writings for the the Star Trek logs. Mm-hmm. So his original story in Thy Image was supposed to be the Star Trek movie. Yes. Well, well, the, and the thing is, the movie, as we know from reading Starlog, that they they had so many ideas for the movie and they kept changing it. So, I mean, yeah, it's sad for it him that, that his story didn't get used. Mm-hmm. But yeah, but it, he was just one of, of many stories that uh, that were written. And, and I saw him. I've seen him several times at Dragon Con. But I know back when he was younger, he had this really long brown hair that was down to his waist. <laughs> it was just, it was a That's very amazing. memorable look. Yeah. And now that now he's got gray hair, it's it's much shorter. I like his commentary on the fact that he knew that the Blish scripts or the Blish adaptations were popular, and that was the idea of do something similar for the animated series. Remember, 1978, the average person did not have a VCR. Throughout the 70s, the average person didn't have a VCR. So these adaptations, as well as photo novels, were critical for fans. I remember myself going over to my grandparents' house, and they had a bunch of these adaptations. And I loved reading them because I was like, wow, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder wonder what this episode is. I've heard the title before, but I've never seen the episode. So, I mean, we have to remember that these adaptations were critical for Star Trek fans because we were able to either see in our mind's eyes episodes that we've never seen before or relive those episodes because we couldn't play them back upon demand. And Alan Dean Foster said that he he was given a copy of the script to, to use to write his. But, I mean, I just love how he, he added more to it. And the thing is, his adaptations were really better than the ones by Blish because James Blish actually yes. cut out a lot of the stories yes. and didn't really add anything to them. Mm-hmm. But Alan Dean Foster added a lot, a lot of his own imagination, and they're, they're really good. With regards to that, he comments in saying that I looked at the animated scripts, which were 20-minute cartoon scripts, and I said, well, I can't get a book out of each of these. But I didn't want to put eight or nine scripts into a book because that would fill two books, and that would be the end of the series. So I ended up putting three stories in a book. So that was the mentality, which totally makes sense because we know the James Blish ones cram a bunch of stories. They're only about 20 pages each for each Star Trek episode, which it should be the other way around. You figured that the TOS adaptations would be longer, but no, the animated series episode adaptations are much longer through Alan Dean Foster. They made him just the opposite of what you would think. It's funny, they ask about his writing style and personal life. And he calls himself a very, very fast and lazy writer. Yeah, that's funny. But but also, c- considering his adaptations, the fact that he was a Star Trek fan, and James Blish wasn't. James yes. Blish was only asked to do it because uh, because he was a known science fiction writer, but he wasn't really a Star Trek fan. Yeah, so I've said it before, is that I get very frustrated when people say, I don't read Star Trek books because that's essentially fan fiction. And I'm like, 
do you realize that one of the most beloved episodes of Star Trek is written by a fan who wrote in? That is David Gerald. Exactly. He was not a professional writer at the time. So, I mean, you can write quality and be a fan. Yeah, a lot of people who who started out writing Star Trek stories became professional writers. And look at TNG. How many scripts were submitted by fans and became a Next Generation episode? Some of the best ones, as a matter of fact. Yeah, that was that was great that TNG opened opened it up to um to fan submissions, and that just um really helped the show a lot too. Having having fans write for the show is really what made the show great. Yeah, so Alan Dean Foster really has made a massive contribution to Trek literary works, and we're we think he's awesome. Hello, uh, welcome. This is Antonio J. Porras Valverde, and today I'm going to give you a brief uh, overview of the article Interplanetary Excursions, The Incredible Shrinking Planet. In the episode Tomorrow is Yesterday, the USS Enterprise passed Mercury as it attempted a slingshot effect around the sun in an effort at returning to 2267. When the Enterprise passed the innermost planet, the gravitational pull of the star increased. Alright, so um, my first impression is that uh, of this article is that it's very descriptive of the surface of Mercury. And I love the analogies and, and the way they, they write um, they write comparisons, for example, in the first um, sentence, they say, what has a surface like the moon's, a density like Earth's, and a magnetic field that wasn't supposed to be there at all, and has wrinkle, uh, wrinkles. And so, given that Mercury is, is the closest um, planet in our solar system to the sun, um, we, were, we were not expecting for it to have a magnetic field, given that it was possibly... Um, you know, it definitely has no uh, atmosphere or close to non-atmosphere, and um, it would just be uh, di- just difficult to to understand how that magnetic field could even like try to protect the uh, Mercury, given its close um, part to to the Sun. But apparently, it does have a, an, a magnetic field, and um, they actually do mention here that. It is uh, less, it's weaker than Earth's, about 1%, less than 1% of, er- of Earth's, but it's more than Merc- the Mars and, Ju- and, and Venus's. And, and that's really interesting, but I think it makes sense if we were to think about how big the core of, of Mercury is. And I remember, um, I had to look this up because I remember a while back when I learned about Mercury. And this is not my area of study at all, but this is something I was curious to know, was that the um, the core, the iron core of Mercury is more than half its um, its actual radi- uh, radius, like total radius. So, so, the, so the most of, most of, more than half of the total radius of, of Mercury is, is composed of the, the actual um, iron core. And so if you have an iron core and uh, you more likely will have a, a magnetic field, 
in this magnetic field is probably gonna like if we were to think about this giant um, core I would think like it would be a very strong magnetic field but then this core might be affected by the tidal forces by from the Sun so this a core could but could may not be solid all the time and it could be uh, molten and so when that happens then the um, the magnetic fields could also be weakened by that and so it makes sense that if this core is huge but it's but it's also molten then the magnetic field is is, is weakened and um, that could possibly be like that explanation and that's something that they mention in this article about uh, one of one of the implications of, of why this um, this is the case and so another thing that I caught my eye was the the fact that this planet has wrinkles and so you know I have never um, learned about mercury in such detail where it uh, they say its surface is, is similar to the to the moons and and it has wrinkles and, and what causes those wrinkles exactly and so in the article they mentioned that it could have been due to um, uh, could be like a dried fruit effect well as the moisture of the dried fruit evaporates the interior shrinks leaving too much skin to make a smooth covering so it could be something similar to uh, mercury um, the interior has uh, cooled so the interior of mercury cooled and then it shrank and it caused the surface to to crust and then um, you know uh, wrinkle up and so it could be the case that many of those wrinkles could be caused like that. Um, and in the article, they show two really cool pictures of um, of the surface. What I'm gonna presume is the surface of Mercury. And um, indeed, it does look like a giant wrinkle um, with some craters. It looks very similar to the moon also. Um, a lot of um, impacts. So something that uh, I did not see mentioned in this article and that I, I thought one of the, was one of the coolest things when I learned about Mercury a long time ago is that the fact that um, Mercury, well, Mercury is about like one-fourth the radius of the Earth. Its mass is about 5% Earth's mass. And it's also, you know, it's the closest one to the Sun. And... It's also one of the planets that has a, a synchronous rotation with the sun. So what, what that means, and I hope I'm using the, the right word, is that um, as the planet is orbiting the sun, it's facing the, the face that the, the Mercury is, is shown to the sun is the same all the time. It's kind of the same as, as, the, as the moon with the earth. So the, the, the moon face that we see is the same all the time that the moon is orbiting us and so if we think about the sun as the earth then then the sun is always going to be looking at the same face as uh, for mercury and that is huge because that tells us at least for the sun that because the sun has such high uh, temperatures and um, the mercury is so close to the sun then the face that the sun the face that the sun is able to see from mercury is um, Mercury's face, the, the one that is facing the sun, is is super hot. It's 
extremely, extremely hot. But if we travel um, close to the edge of that um, that face, where you're you're in between that face and in between the the dark side, what we can call the dark side, then the temperature um, drops, and so the, it could be it could be cooler slash fresher to be in the center. I mean, in the in the middle. But if you go back to all the like the backside, if you can call it the backside of the mer Mercury, then it's gonna be super cold. Like there's no way you can ever um, life, life as we know it could ever survive that. that. Um, maybe like some microorganisms, but I'm not too familiar with. I'm not an expert on that either. But it makes me think that um, it would be an interesting way to see. Um, you know, there's a section of that planet that could have some temperature that could inhabit anything, but this planet also has no atmosphere that I know of. And also it's, yeah, so it's just interesting. Um, just speculating here. All right, let's close out by talking about this ad in the back pages of Starlog. It says, reprint of a rare collector's item. Star Trek, an analysis of a phenomenon in science fiction. Originally published in 1968, this magazine was the first professional publication devoted solely to Star Trek. Copies of this rare magazine are currently selling for over $15 each at conventions. Now you can own a special edition reprint for only $2.95. Now, I've been looking for this magazine, and I still have never seen it. Have you ever heard of it, Star Trek Phenomenon? No, I haven't. So, so saying it's a rare collector's item, I guess um, that's publicity. <laughs> yeah, the, the show was still on at the time. Yeah, it, I mean, it looks neat, but no, I don't, I don't remember ever seeing that. It says it's 48 pages long, and it covers the eugenics wars, development of work drive, vegan tyranny, cold peace, Romulan war, and rebellion of Tarsus IV. 23rd century science and technology, special effects, and an unusual discussion of computers relating to the Enterprise systems and HAL 9000, to modern, that is 1968, computer development. A sociological discussion of Star Trek's original portrayal of man in the universe and much, much more. So you can send a check or money order to the Star Trek Phenomenon, P.O. Box 182 in Fishkill, New York. So, you know, vegan tyranny is like the planet Vega, they, <laughs> not vegan. <laughs> oh, I never thought about it like that. Okay. I was like, man, vegans usually aren't tyrannical. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and join our Facebook group. Live long and may the force be with you. Nanu Nanu. This show is brought to you by Holosuite Media. Computer. List other available Holosuite Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4. Random Trek Review. A Star Trek Review Podcast. Okay, yeah, I mean, I think that we've talked about Nurse Chapel before, and I think that, yeah, I mean, it's Majel, right? We we love Majel, which she can't really do wrong, so uh, I think that's... That... Well, yes, she can. <laughs> Tried to slip that by you. But maybe not Maybe not during this era, but she certainly can do wrong. Yeah, Christine Chapel couldn't do wrong. Loxwana, 
yeah, she can definitely spoil some episodes for sure. Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, The Expanse, an Enterprise podcast. You guys are making some great selling points for Saval, <laughs> but I still don't like him. So uh, we're just, we're just going to have to agree, disagree, and move on because uh, we have other captains to discuss. Uh, so I'm not going to go there. Um, but we are now up on our next captain, my favorite captain, um, Captain Cisco. All right. And, uh, of course, we see him in his opening uh, pilot episode on board the Saratoga and uh, fighting Picard at Wolf 359 when Picard is Lacutus, of course. Which was not an inside job, no matter what anybody says. <laughs> <laughs> Computer, deactivate Holosuite.